like a big guy, big African-American guy, mohawk, weird feather earrings, lots of gold chains. Um, some of you who don't know who he is, you're like, I've seen memes <laughs> of this guy. And um, it's interesting, like, he, in the movie, he says, I don't hate Rocky Balboa, but I pity the fool. Have you guys ever, this eventually becomes his, like, catchphrase. Um, I pity the fool this, I pity the fool that. You memes, every April 1st, he's just filled with pity, right? And um, April Fool's, there you go. And so uh, this kind of becomes his thing. He eventually even gets his own TV show called I Pity the Fool, where he gives motivational talks to people who otherwise receive his pity. Um, now, you may be surprised, but uh, Mr. T is actually a, a brother in the Lord. He's, he's a Christian man. And, I mean, for sure, if you look at his life, he started out a little rough around the edges. But we've seen, as the Holy Spirit does, has changed him to look more and more like Jesus. Uh, that at a certain point, um, he had cancer in the 90s, and that really sort of, that humbles you. Um, and at one point, he was helping with the post-Katrina like, disaster, helping with the poor. And he came under conviction. He's like, it's weird that I wear like $10,000 worth of gold around my neck at all times. And he, he set that aside. The Lord's changing him in his heart. And uh, for me, when I, when I look at Scripture, um, there's moments where I see Scripture. I, I don't think Mr. T was like, intentionally, he's not quoting scripture, but there's this sense of like, I pity the fool. I, I hear that in the words of the Apostle Paul. He, he speaks about this. Um, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. What I'm doing right now is pointless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found then to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is Paul's way of saying, as a Christian, have died. Fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all pity, of all people most to be pitied. We of all people are most to be pitied if the resurrection did not occur. Paul's point here is that if Jesus is still in the grave, if he has not been raised, then we are essentially, as Christians, wasting our lives like fools. Like fools. Are we fools simply worshiping a dead man? Claiming that the historical Jesus died is not a difficult thing for people to accept. Of course Jesus died, right? That's not really challenged by anyone. But the idea that he came back to life at some point. I think all of us could say, I pity the fool that worshiped a dead man. But if Jesus lives, then we pity those who do not worship him as God. So the question that remains before us then uh, could not be more weighty. Does he indeed live? A lot hangs on this question. Because if he remains in the grave and we remain in our sin, we are fools for following him, but if we live. So what Paul is telling us here is that everything we believe as Christians hinges on the historical reality of Jesus coming out of the grave. It's that important. So that's what we're going to spend our time on. We're going to look at both at how it was accomplished and its implications 
for us. We're going to be in the Gospels of Matthew and John. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open to Matthew. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and literally someone will bring you a Bible and you can take it home with you. It's not stealing. We intend for you to take it. Uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27. If you were with us on Friday night, uh, we met upstairs, several of our locations gathered, and uh, Jordan was preaching on the death of Christ. So we're going we're gonna to start there. Matthew chapter 27, uh, I'm going to read verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Yielded up his spirit. That's the first thing I want us to see this morning, is that Jesus yielded his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. He didn't lose hold of it. It didn't get away from him. He yielded it. He gave it up. He lay down. He set aside his life. It was volitional. He was 100% in control. And that shouldn't come to us as a surprise. Uh, Jesus said as much that he had this ability. He had this power. I'm going to ask you, if, you, if you want to try and keep up, you can. You can stay in Matthew, you can jump with us to John, John chapter 10. So it's a couple gospels over. In John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and, and starting halfway through verse 17, he says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. It's amazing to be able to die and come back to life at will. Most of us can't even fall asleep or wake up at will. You're like, time to go to bed. And you're just staring at the ceiling. No ability. And yet Jesus is able to do this. Like some kind of action figure to snap the spirit in and out. Um, anyone can claim the ability to die. It's not hard to demonstrate. Any of us could pull that off. It's a lot harder to show the ability to bring things back from the dead. And yet Jesus did this many, many times in his ministry to the point that there was this general sort of rumor forming that Jesus could do more than just heal. Now, he kept it on the down low. A lot of times there'd be an environment with a, a closed room, brings the little girl back to life, and he's like, oh, she was just sleeping, which you're like, is that a white lie, Jesus? I don't understand how he's like kind of curious. He's just like, don't tell anyone that I'm bringing people back from the dead. But people talk, you know, it's too exciting. It's crazy. And so people get this general sense. But it's, you know, it's like, I think that Jesus maybe can do this amazing thing. But that all changes with Lazarus. You guys know the story of Lazarus. Lazarus's body, I mean, when G by the time Jesus gets there, Jesus' Lazarus' body is not like freshly dead, like still in his sick bed in a room somewhere in his house. No. He's been dead for a while. They have already wrapped him up and buried him. They've already had the funeral. The flowers that were at the funeral have already wilted. I mean, it's over. Then Jesus arrives four days later. And he says, hey, can you guys open up the grave? And they're like, well, Jesus. <laughs> you know, Lazarus is going to be juicy by now. It's going to, the smell, right? I mean, there are limits to even your power. But Jesus is a persistent guy. Um, so if you scroll forward to John chapter 11, Picking up in verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus had already privately communicated with the Father, but now he's kind of looping in everyone. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this was not an indoor, private, easy-to-explain-away kind of resurrection miracle. This was a very public, unexplainable, crazy kind of miracle. And everybody's seeing it and hearing about it. And the religious leaders who were already kind of like troubled by Jesus are aghast that he has done this. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And so, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. One of the reasons that Jesus was ultimately killed is because he was going around raising people from the dead. You can't have that. They couldn't have that. And so they planned to put him to death. And they accomplished this. Jesus did have to feed them some evidence. They were having trouble getting the witnesses together. So Jesus eventually was like, gives them some like blasphemy evidence, which, you know, he was God, so it wasn't really blasphemy. But he admitted to it. They got it. And like, yes. And then they had to kind of repackage it as being sort of insurrection against the Roman Empire. But eventually they get it done, and he's executed. Jesus lays down his life. He yields his spirit. Now, will he be able to take it up again as he said he could? If he didn't, there's all a waste of time. Everything's for naught. All right, back to Matthew. Back to Matthew 28. This is the passage that was read before. So let me just read through it again. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came back and rolled came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that image because part of you thinks like, was he tired? You know, like he rolls it with big. And then, and then you see him perching. Some of you are picturing like a little cherubie guy picturing. I'm picturing like he sits on the stone and his legs go all the way to the ground. This guy was a big angel, uh, which, which makes sense then. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, these were Roman soldiers. They, didn't, they were the scariest people around. They did not generally get scared, and yet they all blacked out. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. All throughout this, people are being told, like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Why? This is scary. This is unprecedented. It was weird when Jesus raised other people from the dead. It's really, really weird when someone is able to raise themselves from the dead. So this is how the Gospels depict that he did it, just as he said that he could and he would, that he set aside his life, he took it back, and he lives today. 
Jesus is alive. And you may be thinking, well, that, this, this just doesn't seem rational, right? We live in an age where, you know, a couple thousand years later, we know better. This kind of thing isn't possible. I don't have a, a framework for how this would even make sense. Maybe that's you. Well, remember that Jesus' authority is um, synonymous with his authorship, right? Jesus is the, presented in Scripture as the agent through all things uh, being created. He, he authors all things. He's the creator of all things. And so, therefore, he has the authority to make changes, to make changes of things, including his own human life status. It's easy for him. He just switches it on and switches it off. Any Minecraft players in the room? Don't be ashamed. Yeah, you guys are like, mm. yeah, Evan's pointing them out. He knows. Minecraft, right? Like, you're playing and you're like, hmm, creative mode. And then you can just do whatever you want, right? Jesus is doing creative mode. He's just like, oh, now I'm going to come back to life. And you're like, cheating. Like, hey, you know, it's not, I don't have to play survival. Some of you can't relate to Minecraft. I apologize. Okay, I'll pick a really old movie half of you haven't seen, The Matrix, and ruin it for you. He's... He's killed. He's killed briefly. And yet then he realizes that he has the authority to just change the code. And so he decides to come back to life. It's very Christological in this film. Um, the Christ figure, he chooses because he has the authority. The resurrected Jesus himself speaks to us in Revelation. We just finished a big study of Revelation, or we are close to finishing. Certain uh, locations have finished. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. Some of you may be thinking, okay, if Jesus is alive, where is he? That's a very reasonable question. Jesus has ascended to the Father to prepare a place for us to join him there. Just to go back to the Minecraft analogy for a moment, um, he's on a different server, okay? Now, now the people, yeah, you've let, we know who you are now, right? He's on a different server, he's working on Earth 2.0, and when he's done, he will whitelist your name so you can join him there. Gospel for gamers. All right. Uh, when I was young, I went to see a Christian illusionist, which is what they call themselves because they don't want to say magician. It's too spiritual. They're probably right. And he did amazing things. Like at one point he started flying. And I don't know. How, I mean, I'm assuming there were wires. And he, but he went through like hula hoops and stuff. I don't know how he did it. Um, but the most amazing thing was at some point he crushed himself down in this like glowing triangle thing. It was a very impressive trick. I was a child. Perhaps as an adult, I'd be like, oh, I know how he did it. But as a child, it was amazing. Uh, at this point in our study, Jesus setting aside his life only to sort of pull it out again like a rabbit out of a hat may just seem like a, well, that's a cool trick, Jesus. That's really neat. But as we saw Paul point out at the very beginning, it's not just a trick. It's not even just an awesome display of his power and authority. No, there were things happening. There was a reason for this. When Jesus died, he did something. He kicked open the door to heaven to make a way for us to follow him in. See, ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and were put outside of God's presence in the Garden of Eden, humanity has been on the outside, in the cold, in rebellion against God, under judgment, God's enemies, and doomed as objects of his wrath. Your sin, your rebellion, yours keep you separated from God, and justly so. But now something new has happened, 
And it's, it's easy for us to miss. Go back to Matthew 27. I don't even know where you are in your scripture now, but go to Matthew 27, back to verse 50. We'll read this again. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded his spirit. Right? We read that. Next verse. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, Jordan touched on the significance of this on Friday evening. What is this curtain? Well, in the temple, uh, the, the Jewish temple, they had these different areas. They had the, the outer court, inner court, the holy place. And then there was the Holy of Holies where the active presence of God dwelled. The Ark of the Covenant was there. And there was this really thick, like really thick, multi-layered curtain that separated the holy from the holy of holies. And uh, I think Dwight touched on this a few weeks ago in our Revelation study, the idea of the Holy of Holies and how once a year the high priest, after doing many sacrifices and purifications, that once a year he would enter into the Holy of Holies. You guys remember this? They would have bells on his thing so they could hear him moving around, and they tied a rope to his leg because if anything went wrong, he would die, and they would have to drag his smoking corpse out of God's presence. That's how dangerous God's presence was. The writer of Hebrews tells us that our God is a living fire. Not to say that God is an element. We, we know that he is spirit in nature from, from scripture. But he is also holy, holy, holy. So pure that if we get close to him, we, we burn up. We are too frail because of our sin. So the veil was like a safety thing. It was a it was a protection. It's what kept us out. And yet at the death of Jesus, it was torn and opened. The implications of this are twofold. One, we can now go in. We can go in. Relationship with God the Father through the perfect blood sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God, taking away our sins once for all, allows us to once again enter into the presence of God, where no human could safely tread ever since Adam and Eve were cast out. And we don't die when we enter the presence of God because Jesus has already died for us in our place. And now he has the authority to sort of whitelist us for heaven. And that is called the Lamb's Book of Life. That's the way. Secondly, God comes out. Not that God wasn't already everywhere in his omniscience, but the active, manifest, dangerous presence of God's Spirit comes out. We see it at Pentecost. It comes out, and where does it go? Into Jesus' followers as the new temple. Fascinating to see the Spirit of God leave, the, like, out of the box and into the people of God. And is now dangerously present in each of us who are covered by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus. So you don't just have access to the Father through the work of Jesus, but the Father sends the Spirit, Jesus sends the Spirit to live in us and work through us if we've given ourselves over to Jesus. Now, at this point, you're like, that's all great, but I have questions. I have questions. Many people would ask, how do we know that the historical Jesus actually resurrected, really? I mean, how do we know that he resurrected from the dead? Well, the Gospels give us hundreds of eyewitnesses, large groups and small groups, seeing him alive, testifying to him. And when these accounts were written, uh, was when people who would know if they were fake were still around, that no one went and said, oh, I'm going to write an expose. I can see that 
you guys are sort of crafting this false narrative about this guy, and I'm going to write an expose. No one did that. It was just accepted. We don't have any sort of expose. And this is extremely interesting. The earliest Christian heresies were not like, oh, there was this guy, and he claimed to be God, but he was really just a guy. That would make sense. The earliest Christian heresies weren't like that. The earliest Christian heresies were Jesus was God, but he only, he only looked human. He was sort of like a heavenly hologram. They just took it for granted that obviously Jesus was super magic, right? And the heresies were he's not really human. Of course, we believe that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Many years later, hundreds of years later, the heresies switched in an understandable way. They said he was just a man. He wasn't really God. But early on, for the people who knew Jesus, who saw him healing, who saw him die, who saw him alive, who saw him fly up into the sky to be with the Father, it was like, well, obviously Jesus was an alien or something. He was not just a, a guy. And of course, if Jesus was laid to rest in a tomb, and everyone knew where it was, there was a guard post over the thing, it would have become a celebrated place. There would be still like, you know, a shrine or something like that. It would have built up. This is the natural human propensity, is to enshrine these sort of holy nights, things like that. And we could go on for hours and hours and hours, all exploring all of these different sort of variables of like, how do we know if the resurrection really happened? If this is you, you're like, I would like to explore this more. Um, two really great books. Um, one was written by a lawyer who's like, I'll just prove this once and for all, that there's no way that Jesus rose from the dead. However, many years later into his research, he became a Christian and wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? He's like, as a lawyer, the, it's airtight. A journalist decided I, his wife became a Christian, which was super annoying to him. And so he's like, I'll just prove that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And after many long journalistic effort of research and doing all of this stuff, he eventually becomes a Christian, and he writes a book called The Case for Christ. And there's a very excellent, not terrible movie made about that if you don't like reading books. You can, you can pursue those. You can, you can dig on this, and you too will find that the evidence for it is overwhelming by any standard. So the tomb was empty. Well, maybe that's because the disciples just took the body, right? Sure, the tomb was empty. The disciples stole the body, wanting, wanting us to think that he resurrected, and they just hid it somewhere else. That's another theory. Again, doesn't hold up well in history. The religious leaders were actually super worried that the disciples might try this, and so they requisitioned a guard to guard outside the tomb. We saw them blacking out earlier as we were reading in the scripture. And so these guys are there, they roll the stone in place, which is normal, and then they seal it with wax and like make it like a, you put the little ring mark in there. It's like a crime to open this thing. And anyone who tries, the guards will just cut them down. Not that the disciples were trying, though. Where were they? Terrified, right? Terrified, hiding. You know, if you're watching The Chosen, they're a little, they cast a little bit old. I mean, Peter was married, but the rest of these guys, it's like, they were, you know, probably 17, 18, 19, maybe even younger, and they're freaking out. They're in a room somewhere, shades drawn, door locked. They're, they thought Jesus was going to, like, use all his power to overthrow the Roman Empire and free God's people from oppression, which they had every right to expect based on prophecy. They didn't realize Jesus was going to do two visits and kind of split the job up. Um, and so when Jesus dies, it's like existential crisis. Like a week earlier, they're thinking like, man, we are going to be rolling and ruling Jerusalem with Jesus. Now they're in a dark room freaked out. They had not had time 
to reformulate a plan like, let's go steal the body and then kill all the Romans. Like, that's not happening. They're freaking out. Maybe the Romans didn't actually kill Jesus all the way. Maybe he just, you know, blacked out and like, he looks dead, tucked him into a cave. And Jesus is like, oh, it's nice and cool in here. And he kind of wakes up and gets out, you know, like pushes the stone over, fights the Romans. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Romans were actually really good at killing people. It was like their expertise. Um, And in fact, if they were assigned to kill someone and they failed, they were killed. So they took their job super seriously. Can you imagine if you're at work and you're like, ah, you know, you didn't file your TPS report, so into the gas chamber, right? Like, I mean, it's very serious. So they were real. This is how they checked to see if they'd finished the job. They're like, are you still alive? And then be like, spear into the, you know, it's like shooting someone in the head. They're like, I think they're dead. They just, they just made it work. So we see in scripture that, that they did this to Jesus uh, and that Jesus was indeed quite dead. Trenton dug up the medical details of this step, so I will share that with you. Uh, the spear, which we went up into his side, likely punctured the pericardial sac surrounding the heart, causing a buildup of fluid, or the buildup of fluid, that included both blood and water. Uh, the separation of blood and water may have been due to the normal postmortem process of coagulation um, and separation of blood components. So that's what happened, is we have blood and water coming out separately, indicating he was indeed dead. Um, and that, so Jesus is dead, no one stole his body, but instead he appears alive to all of these different groups of people. So much so that it is almost a given that the early heresies are all thinking he's just simply magic and not human. But Jesus didn't just die and come back the same. This is a really important thing for you guys to to latch onto because we often see it's like Jesus and then he comes back. But he doesn't come back the same. Just like Jesus made all things the first time, he's now making all things over again. So Jesus is like that car that they release at the car show that you can't buy one yet. It's like a concept car. This is like Jesus 2.0. He's like the first new thing in the new creation. Um, And he has plans to remake all things, including you and I, whether you follow him or not. All human beings are going to be remade and will be remade indestructible, unable to die, which is why when you go to heaven, we talk about heaven. It's like, oh, you're there forever, eternity in heaven right? Because you can't die. You've been remade. You 2.0. The same thing is true if you reject King Jesus and you're put outside into his dungeon hell. You can't die. You've been remade. You are indestructible. So this new remade world is going to be of stiffer stuff, imperishable, more real than this one. It's hard to imagine a world more real. Like you go in the metaverse, you're like, this is less real than the real world. Um, this world will feel like that compared to the real world. It will be, if you were to go there now, it would be too bright, too sharp, too hard. You, you wouldn't be able to, to be there yet because you haven't been remade for it. Uh, and Jesus is there now, still at work, preparing a place for us. Uh, we can see it um, back to John, John 14, verse 2. Should have told you to keep your finger in John. Okay, in, in chapter uh, 14, verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... I would, have told, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, one of his disciples, says, Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can you say that we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
by way of summary, the implications of the living Jesus are manifold. If Jesus is still in the grave, then we are all worse than fools and should be pitied. Because if there is no resurrection for him, then there's no resurrection for us. As Paul says, if our only hope is in this world, we are really kind of wasting our lives as Christians. But if Jesus is alive, then the veil that's separating us from God has been torn by the authority purchased by Jesus' blood. And the access to God is now possible through Jesus' blood sacrifice. And you can access this gift, not by being a good person, not by reading your Bible, not by praying, not by going to church, not by anything other than believing and trusting in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf and asking him in faith to bring you safely into the presence of the Father. Not just that you can go into the dangerous presence of God, but that God will then set up his dangerous presence inside you, and then you will find yourself reading the Bible, praying, being a part of the church and the mission that Jesus left us with, which is to share this good news, that he has made a way for us to be rescued, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and that he's gone to prepare a place for us, that he's there now interceding for us, praying for us at the right hand of the Father, that he sends us gifts by his Spirit, that he carries us in our suffering, that he comforts us in our sorrow, that he is with us and he leads us into eternal life, and that we too will resurrect one day. And we don't often think about that, not just reborn, but remade, imperishable, that death then loses its sting. That's the thing about death, it's so long. Right? It's the sort of permanence of death that makes death such a, a grievous thing to wrestle with when you lose a loved one to death. And you're like, ah, it's not like they're gone for a few months. I'll see you later. It's like they're gone. The permanence of death. And yet, Scripture says the death, that the sting of death, that permanence of death has been removed. So much so that Paul, when he talks about, and we saw this earlier, when he talks about Christians who have died, he doesn't even like to say that they're dead. He says they are sleeping. Some of you are sleeping. <laughs> no, just, just teasing you. No, that, we're, that, that Paul says that it's like they're asleep. We see this in uh, Thessalonians 4. You don't have to turn there. Verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is Jesus' second visit. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This is where all of us, all Christians, get our own Easter morning experience, where we are raised out of the grave to power and glory and joy. Paul explains in Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Did you know that? That Jesus' story, Jesus' arc is your story, your arc. That most of us, probably, unless Jesus comes back soon, we will taste the grave, and yet we will be resurrected like Jesus. How then do we respond to this? 
for those whose hearts are saying, ah, this is something I want. This is something um, that my heart longs for. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verse 3. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have not called upon the name of the Lord, do so today. He can hear you because he is alive and he is at work. In fact, if you feel anything in your heart tugging at you for this thing, that is the work of Jesus happening now because he is at work in you. Call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to save you because he can and because he will and because it's his right and authority and glory to rescue people and add them to his family. If you've already called on the name of the Lord, if you've already um, made him your king and your savior and your treasure, do not count your life as something to be held on to, but lay it down at the cross. Lay down every sin that entangles, lay down every treasure that distracts, every relationship that competes, lay it all down at the cross. These, are, these things are but trinkets to, compared to what we will receive in the new kingdom from Jesus. Whatever Jesus is doing in your heart right now, let him. Don't fight him. I invite you to open the door and let him in. And this is what you were made for. This is what he made you for, his relationship with him. I'm going to pray and we're going to respond. Jesus, um, we thank you that you are alive. We thank you that you are going to bring us back to life, imperishable, to dwell with you in glory forever, to enjoy you. Such good news. We don't deserve it. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for gifting us with life. Uh, Spirit, we ask that now as you are, are present as Jesus is away, making a new place for us to be with the Father, um, you, you, Spirit, are here with us now during this time. We ask that you would be at work, um, changing hearts as only you are able to do so. Um, that you make Jesus glorious, not us. Uh, that we will worship him in response to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name.